Welcome in to News and Views with Tom Lamprecht. The stories you've heard and the ones you need to hear. Israel, a stampede at a religious festival. 44 uh, deaths. All this money that, that the Biden administration is trying to spend. It's a once-in-a-generation investment in America. Surge in cases in India. The world's new epicenter. The worst coronavirus crisis. The 2021 NFL draft is now officially open. We're really going to have a derby. Your life, your values, your voice. This is News and Views with Tom Lamprecht on Talk 96.3 and 103.7. All right, welcome in. It is Friday, News and Views. Tom and Clark Benny's off today. Got a good program lined up for you. Lots to talk about, as always. WITN is reporting Elizabeth City has adjusted its curfew as protests continue. The curfew will now go from midnight to 6 a.m. until further notice. The city enacted an 8 p.m. curfew earlier this week after days of protests following the death of Andrew Brown Jr. In a statement, the city said the only uh, exceptions to this curfew are for traveling to and from employment or emergency visits to stores, gas stations, etc. There have been a handful of people that have been arrested for breaking the curfew. Interesting juxtaposition story uh, compared to what's going on in Elizabeth City, and that's Uh, The Western Journal is reporting the family of Air Force vet that was killed back on January the 6th in the Capitol announced a major lawsuit earlier this week against Capitol Police. Ashley Babbitt's family is planning to sue the U.S. Capitol Police and the officer who shot and killed Babbitt, even though we still don't know who that officer is. Plans for the lawsuit, which will seek at least $10 million in damages, were announced after federal prosecutors decided not to press criminal charges against the plainclothes Capitol Police lieutenant who killed Babbitt. Prosecutors would have to prove not only that the officer used force that was constitutionally unreasonable, but the officer did so willfully, which the Supreme Court has interpreted to mean that the officer acted with a bad purpose to disregard the law. This according to a Justice uh, Department statement from earlier this week. The investigation revealed no evidence to establish that at the time the officer fired a single shot at Ms. Babbitt. The officer did not reasonably believe that it was necessary to do so in self-defense or in defense of the members of Congress or others evacuating the House chamber. Okay, so, uh, and and listen, I am not passing judgment on this Capitol Police officer, but can we uh, make that same application to the Elizabeth City deputies? Uh, Are they going to be given the same grace? Babbitt was shot and killed while rioters tried to break through the doors of the Speaker's lobby at the Capitol. She was unarmed. She was a vet. She was not a felon. Now, I know that the police officer, the Capitol Police officer, didn't have the ability to know this. But uh, as the Western Journal reports, uh, at at best she was trespassing. Uh, Did did this individual, and there was other police officers there, did this individual woman pose a life-threatening threat that lethal force should have been used. On the contrary, though, in Elizabeth City, those deputies knew that Andrew Brown Jr. was a felon. They knew he was a drug dealer. There was probably suspicion that he could have been armed. 
And he was driving his car. And, and again, okay, we'll wait for the video evidence, but, you know, early speculation from the DA up there. And he's, he doesn't have a, uh, I mean, he doesn't have a dog in the, in the fight. He's, he's merely the DA that is looking to, you know, represent the citizens. He is saying that the Andrew Brown used the car as a weapon. So can we just have at least the same amount of grace given to those deputies that's being given to the uh, police officer up in the Capitol? I think that might be fair. Republican senators, this out of the Washington Free Beacon, are working to make the electric battery company Joe Biden toured to promote his $1.9 trillion infrastructure plan this year's Solyndra. Yeah, you remember the boondoggle Solyndra? How many was it? $500 million they got? Some astronomical amount of money. And Solyndra went belly up and still don't know what happened to all that money. Biden's promotion of the electric battery and bus manufacturer Proterra has struck a nerve on Capitol Hill after the Washington Free Beacon reported that Biden's energy secretary, Jennifer Granholm, still has up to $5 million invested in the company. The administration's $1.9 trillion infrastructure plan includes a $174 billion investment in electric vehicles, as well as plans to replace diesel-powered buses with electric-powered buses, the very product that Proterra specializes in. Ted Cruz says the conflict of interest created by Biden's visit to the, uh, has the potential to be even worse than Solyndra, the solar company that went bankrupt after receiving hundreds of millions of dollars in government-backed loans from the Obama administration. I mean, it was amazing how quickly Solyndra, I think it was $300 million, and how quickly they went through it and how quickly they went belly up. President Biden's decision to heavily promote a business where his energy secretary holds a multi-million dollar stake has all the potential to be even worse than Solyndra, Cruz told the uh, Free Beacon. President Biden and Secretary Granholm should immediately remove themselves from their glaring conflict of interest. The Solyndra boondoggle became a lasting symbol of failure during the Obama administration, which awarded the green energy firm, I'm sorry, it wasn't $300 million, it was $535 million. But uh, the, the mainstream media doesn't hold them accountable. They won't hold Joe Biden accountable. You've got to go to conservative websites and conservative outlets and conservative radio shows to uh, even find this information out. News and Observer is reporting North Carolinians can still sue a person who has an affair with their spouse. Uh, a handful of lawmakers killed the bill that would have been re uh, repealed the law that is a century old. In a hearing this past Wednesday morning, members of the House Judiciary Committee split in a 4-4 vote on whether to advance House Bill 485 and eliminate the, st the state's criminal conversions law, I'm sorry, conversations law. The tie vote kept the bill from moving forward. This isn't the first time lawmakers have attempted to remove North Carolina from a list of just six states where husbands or wives can sue a third party for having an affair with their spouse, alienation of affection. England abolished, abolished the century-old law, which originated when men still considered women as property in the 1850s. 
uh, that's out of the news and observer. I, I don't know that um, just because they had this law in the books that they were considering, uh, at least all men were considering women as property. I think that's a little over the top. The law is harsh, cruel, and has not been used as intended, said Representative Billy Richardson, a Democrat from Fayetteville. Uh, that's extortion, he said. Really? I, I mean, I, I, I think this is an alienation. Listen, I have, I have, um, I, I know of situations, contemporary situations, just within the last several years, of which this alienation of affection was uh, very appropriate for a situation like this. I mean, if if one spouse loses the other spouse, should that spouse not have the uh, recourse to get financial gain from the person that um, took away the, the other spouse? And when you stop and think about it, I mean, there will be financial hardship when this kind of thing happens. I mean, who's going to take care of the kids if the husband's away working and uh, the wife is now gone from the scene? So I, I, I don't, I don't know. I, and quite frankly, do do we not need laws on the books that protect the family? Laws that will keep this kind of thing from happening, adultery from happening. Oh, I know, I'm archaic. I know, I'm. <laughs> I'm antiquated for, heaven forbid, you know, we, we do something to protect the family. But, uh, I mean, all, all the issues that we're seeing around the country today, I, I think all go back to the breakdown of the family. And listen, I know that there are people out there that, you know, there are single moms out there, single dads out there who are doing the best they can. God bless you. But, and, and I'm not saying this is going to be the perfect solution, but we, uh, well, obviously it's not because it's been on the books all along, but we need, we need more laws that protect and keep the family intact. So I, uh, I say good for the North Carolina legislature for leaving it on the books. I'm, I'm sure I'm in the minority on that. You take a poll of all the people, but uh, so be it. Um, North Carolina uh, News and Observer also reports senators walked back a proposed bill that would ban child marriages in North Carolina. I mentioned this yesterday. Um, Senate Bill 35 in its original form would have banned anyone under 18 from marrying. When we first filed this bill, one of the things we are looking at is the fact that North Carolina has become a destination place for marriage for folks who are marrying children for sex trafficking. Senator Danny Britt said we wanted to... Uh, come up with a bill that would take us off that list and protect these children. But on Wednesday afternoon, Britt, a Lumberton Republican, brought an amendment forward that undid the majority of that bill. North Carolina is one of two states, Alaska being the other, that allows children to marry as young as 14. Under Britt's amendment, children as young as 14 can still marry, but only someone four years older or less. The marriage would need to be approved by a parent or a guardian with written notice given to the clerk of court unless the minor is emancipated. The bill would also allow children over 14 to become pregnant or have a child, uh, or have a child marry the father. A judge must rule, however, that marriage is in the best interest of the children. 
when you say in the best interest of the children, are you talking about the people getting married or are you talking about uh, the baby in the womb? Wow. Lawmakers uh, decided not to move forward on a bill that would prevent transgender girls from, from playing on female sports team. Again, this earlier in the week, House Bill 358 mentioned this yesterday. The Save the Women's Sports Act is dead. And uh, I, I'm, as I mentioned, I'm very disappointed that they allowed this bill to die. Uh, Tim Moore said they found no complaints that the, this is not an issue. He said this is a bill looking for a problem. We had no examples of where this was really a problem, and I'm a believer that you shouldn't pass legislation unless there's a problem you're trying to address, Moore said. I mean, obviously, these things can spin up and get really controversial and all of that. So you know before you go down that road, there needs to be, I would say, an articulated problem. Moore said when talking about the bill's sponsors, they confirmed they hadn't had complaints from anyone. Moore said to further compound the difficulties of taking up this bill, there's the possibility of Title IX violations. Title IX is a federal law that protects federally funded educational programs and activities from discrimination based on a person's gender. Yeah, but here's the thing. Title IX was a bill to protect women's sports, not to eviscerate it. And if you don't think this is uh, going to arise, you're mistaken. Uh, and, and what are you saying to those biological males who identify as females that want to play on the girls' team by just saying, well, that's not an issue, so we're just going to forego it? You've just said, okay, according to the state legislature, it's not an issue, so go ahead and do what you want. Uh, another bill I'm happy with on a uh, state level is uh, a bill from Representative John Bell out of Wayne County, and it's uh, long overdue. It's called the Highway Cleanup Act Advances in North Carolina. Uh, bottom line is this bill is going to make it easier to get uh, inmates out to clean up the roads. It's going to give additional finance, uh, financial uh, help to the, the Department of uh, Transportation to pick up litter. Um, you know, I, I, the other thing that I would like to see in this bill though, is I'd like to see bigger fines to those people who are caught littering because somebody has got to be throwing out of the back of the car or the back of the truck for our highways to be as litter covered as they are, especially in the Eastern part of the state. So kudos to John Bell and those who uh, are advancing that bill. We're going to take a time out. We come back. We're going to be talking about, um, some interesting issues that affect our kids, affect education. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Back to news and views. Talk 96.3 and 103.7. All right, welcome back. It is 22 minutes past the top of the hour. Taking a look at your weekend weather forecast. Looks pretty good. Uh, clear tonight, a low around 48. Tomorrow, sunshine with a high near 72. Tomorrow night, uh, clear and pleasant with a low of 51. Sunday, more sunshine with a high near 84. So it's looking pretty good. Weather brought to you by our friends at University PC, PC Care, I should say. They've been Eastern Carolina's go-to IT experts for quite a while now. Unfortunately, most organizations simply react to IT issues after the damage is done. This is known as the break-fix cycle in the tech services industry. 
Here's a quick example of what I mean. You show up to work one day, you find your computer's down, you submit a repair ticket, a tech shows up or tries to remote in your computer to fix it, all the while you're down, losing productivity, maybe even losing files. University PC Care's Business Services Division has a better way, a proactive solution called BizCare. BizCare tech support and cybersecurity plans are always on duty, staying ahead of potential problems, keeping you up and running with less downtime and much safer from threats like ransomware. Want to know more? Call William at 394-8572 to schedule a free BizCare consultation or go to universitypccare.com to learn more. Western Journal is reporting the Republican-controlled Idaho State Senate has passed a bill this week that would ban public and charter schools and universities from including critical race theory in their curriculums. The measure passed the Senate 27 to 8. After the State House approved it 57 to 12, it's now headed to the desk of Republican Governor Brad Little, House Bill 377, which concerns dignity and non-discrimination in public education, says the tenets of critical race theory exacerbate and inflame divisions on the basis of sex, race, ethnicity, religion, color, national origin, and other criteria in ways that are contrary to the unity of the nation and the well-being of the state of Idaho and its citizens. No doubt if the governor, Brad Little, signs this, he will now be the... Uh, in the crosshairs of uh, the liberals and the progressives and those who uh, want to promote critical race theory along with other forms of liberalism. To talk about this issue and also perhaps to talk about some upcoming solutions, someone who might be familiar with uh, our News and Views audience, Diane Rafino, Diane filled in, I guess it's been a couple of years ago, wasn't it, when uh, Sadie was out in Colorado. Uh, you co-hosted with me for yeah. a m month or two, I guess it was. Yeah. And uh, welcome back. It's been a while Thank since uh, we've yeah, been together. Good to, be back. Good to, to see, see you again. Yeah. So, Diane, this is an issue that is um, uh, it, it continues just to accelerate, it seems like, in the, in the public uh, the public education system. You provided me with an article that was printed in the City Journal in March of this year, and uh, you know, okay, this we got the situation up in Idaho where they they've been proactive, even though some of the legislators up there said, okay, while this has not been a major issue in Idaho, you know, we're, we're beginning to see it show up. Uh, unfortunately, it sounds like it is an issue right now in North Carolina, at least up in Raleigh. It is. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I hope our state, our state follows uh, that lead. Um, critical race theory is has been adopted by teachers. You know, it's not right. the product of a bill or an executive order or anything like that, or a policy from the North Carolina General Assembly. It was a product of North Carolina teachers themselves up in the Wake County. Um, uh, school system. Well, they, that was they adopted year. it. I mean, they yeah. didn't invent it. No, they, that was back in 1989 was the first articulation of a race theory. That long ago. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, they were talking about it in the 60s and the 70s, too. But articulation of an actual race theory was uh, 89. So our teachers, and you know why the teachers are bringing this stuff up, because the teachers aren't conservative. You know, we, we all know what the political bent of the, of the teachers are. They're very progressive, and they're very socially 
conscience, social progress- progressivism. Um, you know, there's all kinds of, um, I don't know, woke types of groups teaching. Um, so, uh, yeah, the, the, the Wake County School Board passed um, or adopted this and put it into place last year. Yeah, just and that's the just largest school system, right? Largest right. school system in the state. Yeah, I don't know if, that, if that's is, uh, which is larger, Mecklenburg or, or Wake County. No, they, but they certainly, say Wake County. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there, there is, uh, they, they've started doing uh, seminars for teachers. They had one last year that 200 teachers showed up. Um, they talked about, well, let me, let me read from this article yeah. out of the mm-hmm. City Journal. Last year, the Wake County public school system, which serves the greater Raleigh, North Carolina area, held an equity-themed teachers conference with sessions on, quote, whiteness, microaggression, racial mapping, disrupting text, encouraging educators to form equity teams in schools and push the new party line anti-racism. That's a term you hear a lot now. The February 2020 conference began with a land acknowledgement, a ritual recognition suggesting that white North Carolinians are colonizers on stolen Native American land. Next, the superintendent of Wake County Public Schools, Kathy Moore, introduced the day's program and shuffled teachers to breakout sessions across eight rooms. Uh, and by the way, this was uh, this information was all obtained by a freelance reporter, A.P. Dillon, who got this through free, freedom, freedom of information uh, request. Uh, at the first session, whiteness in ed spaces, school administrators provided two handouts on the norms of whiteness. These documents claim that white cultural values include denial, fear, blame, control, punishment, uh, and one-dimensional thinking. According to notes from the session, the teachers argued that whiteness perpetrates uh, the system of injustice and the district's whitewash curriculum was doing real harm to our students and educators. The group encouraged white t- uh, uh, teachers to challenge the dominant ideology of whiteness and disrupt white culture in the classroom through a series of transformational interventions. And this article goes on to say how they also uh, are going out of their way to make sure parents, they just look at parents as interference. And they're going to do everything to circumvent the authority, the moral authority of parents over their kids. And they encourage teachers to do this. And basically they're saying that the ends justify the means of you overruling the the parental authority of parents over their kids. Yeah, it says to ignore the parents. And, uh, yeah, um, circumvent them. You know, they uh, teachers have the ultimate authority on how to raise the students or or mind control the students to to look at things in terms of race, whether or not that's how they're taught at home. But you know, if they're not being taught at home, you know, not being taught at home, then they're not being taught right. So the teachers they know better. And this the same uh, ideology uh, is not just being applied to the race issue; it's also being applied to the the issue of sexuality. Oh yeah, and transgenderism. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's a slippery time. slope, right? There's, you know. <laughs> I don't know how many genders there are now, but you know, some people say it's over two hundred. <laughs> wow! Uh, I'm a biologist, so I, I kind of <laughs> find I, that a little long, a little stretch, a little huh? bit, yeah, a little bit a of a stretch. stretch, yeah. So anyway, uh, I want to have you in today because you're involved with a project that's going to be taking place um, down in 
New Bern yeah. mm-hmm. on Tuesday, May 11th. It's yes. gonna, uh, right now, we were talking before uh, we came back after the break. Right now, it's scheduled to be at Moore's Barbecue at 3621 Martin Luther Boulevard in New Bern. Mm-hmm. Um, but it sounds like you're getting such a phenomenal response. You might have to find a larger venue to have it in. But right now, that's the schedule. Mm-hmm. It's going to start at 1130 in the morning on Tuesday, May 11th. So what is this event going to be? I know you've got a special speaker lined up. You're hoping to have um, Lieutenant Governor Mark. Yeah, uh, they've rescinded that. Oh, he, he's not going to be able to make no, it? Okay. No, But um, tell us about what you are going to do and what the, what the goal is and how people can get involved. Sure. Um, so unfortunately, Moore's Barbecue only has uh, room for 40 people. And right now we're getting responses from uh, Tea Party leaders, GOP leaders, conservative groups from like Onslow County, Dare County, uh, Carteret. Um, Sounds you know, like you might have to find Craven, a convention center to know, have it Ken- in. Kinston, um, Pitt County wants to take, wants to bring three. So, um, yeah, I've been in touch with John Wood Woodard, who's running it or organizing it mm-hmm. almost every day, and he's like. Uh, I know there's a lot of people coming. They're just not responding, and so far they have um, some good numbers. Um, the speaker is going to be Miss Sloan Radmuth, uh, Rockmuth, Rockmuth, and she's the president of Education First Alliance. And um, you were right about including Mark Robinson. That was a natural thing to do because he's a champion of education. Yeah. That's one of his. And very his outspoken on this issue. Yeah, yeah, and and with um, you know blackness and race theory in general and and the history of race he calls it a record of success he's proud of it he shouldn't be you know he doesn't want people to be ashamed of the country because of the history he he wants people to be proud because we've overcome you know legal wise constitutionally wise we've we've recognized our past sins you know we're it's a history of recognizing past sins and and doing the right thing and that's what we should be teaching in school sure not continued discrimination like we're, we're we're bad people, like all whites are racist. Well, I don't know if you heard Tim Scott. Uh, oh, and I, his, yeah, I yeah, saw, yeah. His, his response was phenomenal yeah. on this issue when he said, you know, oh, we're trying to solve past discrimination by encouraging mm-hmm. new, new discrimination. discrimination. Yes, and, and uh, you know, he's right. And, I, you know, I'm a white woman. I'm paying a lot of money in taxes to support the school system in, right. in North Carolina. And, and they're bashing my culture? Yeah. I, I, I just find that so offensive. So if folks want to come to this, uh, again, what do, you, what do you hope, uh, is the goal just to inform people or is the goal to begin to give a plan of action to uh, counter what's happening in the public school yeah, system? Yeah, the, the goal originally it was to counter, to get people active. And, you know, I'm a Tea Party leader, and um, you, my goal with the Tea Party is not just to educate, it's to activate. You know, if you're not going to do anything about it, if you're just going to gripe, you know, then that's you're not doing much. But sure. if you're motivated to do something about it, then that's exactly what we want. Then I could really be proud of the Tea Party movement. Um, but yeah, it's, a, it's supposed to be an action-oriented meeting, but it's also going to be informative. So Sloan is going to give a presentation. I understand it's going to like blow people's minds, you know, because she has all the inside information, especially from like the Wake County um, school system, and. Um, I think after she's done, the all these leaders are going to come up, brainstorm, and come up with action plans. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we all sometimes there's too many people, and then there's too many ideas. And sometimes if there's a smaller number, you can just hone in on on a on a plan. So we'll see what happens. But uh, 
this is a start. It's like uh, we're finally waking up to what's going on, and um, you know our you know school system is. I mean, we all know the government's trying to take control of the population, and you know um, Saul Alinsky wrote about it. Joseph Goebbels right. did the same thing with the Nazi Party. They um, one of the best ways to take start taking control is to take control of the education, get them while they're young, indoctrinate them, mind control, and then their job gets. And very of course, easy. Joe Biden just this week said, "Hey, we want to start educating them at three and four, not just to have child care. Well, he, we has no, s- he has no mind. <laughs> no, no, but I mean, look, he, he's yeah. he's the he's the face of the yeah. progressive movement, yeah. oh, and yeah, and yeah. they're saying let's begin to indoctrinate them at an even earlier age. But and that's that's so ridiculous, and it should be to any anybody that's actually gone through a school system that you know did education rather than indoctrination." You know, a, a child's mind is not fully developed. It's not even fully developed right. when he graduates high school. Right. They can't process everything. So they go on emotion rather than facts. Well, that's right? what progressives you know, do. Yeah, I mean, yeah. That's the whole point. So that's point. why they choose the, the youth is because, you know, they like the emotion. They want to do the right thing and, you know, gung-ho, kumbaya. So how do, if, if somebody wants to go uh, come be a part of this, how can they get more information? you have a website or a phone number? Um, well, they can contact. Um, I can give john woodard's cell number okay um which is um you got a pen out there yeah uh, it's 252-267-9512 um, again it's 252-267-9512 now i'm going to post a lot of remarks on uh rit- critical race theory on the eastern north carolina tea party uh, of Pitt County and on a, a bunch of different. Is that on Facebook or is yes. that a website? It's okay, a face, it's Facebook. It's so a, would they just go to Eastern North Carolina Tea Party? Yeah, and in, in parentheses of Pitt County, um, and I post a lot of stuff lately. And there's probably information uh, on this as well. Yes, at that point. yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. great. And then um, I'm going to post an article on my blog site, and stay tuned because I'm going to follow up on this. Okay. And I'll probably follow up after the meeting with what we discussed. Okay. Again, that's uh, Mon- uh, Tuesday, Tuesday, May 11th mm-hmm. at 11.30. And right now it's at the Moore's Barbecue uh, at 3621 Martin Luther King Boulevard, New Bern. Yeah. And uh, if folks continue to uh, contact uh, John Woodard and uh, Diane, then uh, we're going to have to find a bigger venue. Yeah, and, and actually if you want more information about uh, what critical race theory is or more information about this meeting and if you want to be notified after the fact what was accomplished. And um, my, my cell is 252-916-9605. Very good. Diane Rufino, thanks for coming back and sharing this with us. Good to, good to see you Thank again. Thank you for inviting me. Stay with us. I'll be right back. Your 5 o'clock drive. The drive home should be a delight. This is Tom Lamprecht with more news and views on Talk 96.3 and 103.7. All right, welcome back in. And uh, it is Friday. Getting ready for the weekend. So I talked earlier in the week about the fact that, and common news, everybody's heard about this, that uh, the new census, the 10-year census has come out. And... 
primarily red states, the more conservative states, grew. And as a result, some of these states gained seats in the House, including North Carolina, will now have 14 seats. However, it appears that there could have been some hanky-panky going on by liberals to make it not as bad as it could have been for the liberal side. In other words, Republicans are now questioning Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo on whether there was any political interference in the final census numbers used to decide how many House members each state would get for the upcoming decade. The letter is led by Representative James Comer of Kentucky, the ranking member of the House Oversight Committee. The Republican House members cited gaps between the number of House seats some right-leaning states were projected to gain back in December when the Trump administration was still overseeing all this compared to the final numbers that came out this week. They told Romando, overseeing the Census Bureau, that they have questions about the methodology on the role the Biden White House may have played in releasing these numbers. Quote, the apportionment population results released by the Census Bureau are strikingly different from the population evaluation estimates released just months ago on December the 22nd of 2020. Remarkably, the difference benefit traditionally blue states which gain populations compared to the December estimates. So in other words, the numbers that came out in December... For example, in New York, the December numbers would have been a population of 19,336,776. However, the numbers under the Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo, when she released the numbers, New York had 900,000 more individuals. Now, is that a big deal? Well, it's an extra house seat. So, yeah, it's a big deal. As it is, New York lost one house seat. They would have lost two. Likewise, states such as New Jersey and Illinois experienced large population increases of hundreds of thousands of individuals compared to the December estimates. And, And again, this is why this is really odd, because then you go to red states such as Arizona, Florida, and Texas, And those numbers decreased as compared to the December estimates. Hmm. Curious. So the blue, and and again, I, you know, at at first glance, you'd say, well, conservatives, they, they, you know, came out ahead on this. Yeah. uh, So liberals lost, but it sounds like that there could have been not just a loss, but a major shellacking had the original numbers stayed intact. Are the estimates going to be that far off between December and April? House Republicans' letter was first high-profiled allegations that the Biden administration may have interfered with the census. There's been no other evidence besides the departure from the final numbers from the December estimates to indicate it did. The letter also signed by 16 other Republicans, including Jim Jordan of Ohio and Virginia Fox of North Carolina. According to some estimates, Texas was set to gain three seats— It gained two. New York was projected to lose one, or lose two, rather. It only lost one. According to the Census Bureau, differences between the estimates the Republican members cite 
and the final census appointment results are typically interpreted as error in the estimates and are used to inform research and methodological improvements over the decade. But Comer and the other Republicans in the letter to Raimondo said if the break between the estimates and the census results may be the result of something else. The trend calls into question whether there was any political interference with the appointment results released by the Census Bureau, they write. The GOP asked Raimondo for a trove of documents, including communication between the Census Bureau and the White House, and whether the counting of illegal aliens in the congressional appointment may have had an effect in the final result. Past denial counts have been counted, uh, have count, past, I'm sorry, past 10-year counts have counted the illegal aliens. Comer and other Republicans also raised concern in their letter, saying their staffs were redirected to the White House for questions about the census. The Republicans continued, yet the statute is clear. It is the Secretary of Commerce who reports the appointment count to the president, not the other way around referring to our staff's questions to the White House about results produced by the Census Bureau, is entirely inappropriate. Hmm. So how bad could it have been? It could have been a whole lot worse, apparently, and uh, we'll see. Now, listen, if you're a Republican and you're waiting for these results, uh, these troves of documents from the uh, Commerce, the Department of Commerce, don't hold your breath. If there's some hanky-panky going on, yeah, you, they'll, they'll go to the typical stall tactic, which they've done for a long, long time. They'll continue to do it on this one. We've got to take another time out. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This is your Drive at Five, an ENC with Tom Lamprecht. Welcome back to News and Views on Talk 96.3 and 103.7. Nine minutes before the top of the hour, the Epic Times is reporting that the Florida Republican-controlled Senate yesterday passed a new bill that places several restrictions around the vote-by-mail and ballot drop boxes. This will be interesting. I mean, they went crazy over Georgia. I'm sure they'll go crazy over this. The bill SB90 was passed in the House 77 to 40 in the Senate 23 to 17. It now goes to the Republican Governor Ron DeSantis, who's expected to sign the bill. If signed, it would require signature verification for voters provided by a wet signature that is a physically signed on paper kept on file to access uh, drop boxes uh, that would be limited to early voting hours unless they're located in an election supervisor's office. Drop boxes would also have to be monitored by in-person personnel of the uh, election offices. So, um, you know, reasonable additions to uh, the state law down there to have voter integrity. But the left will no doubt go crazy over this and talk about how it's racist and homophobic and xenophobic and any other phobias that they can come up with. Uh, This is humorous. (laughs) This is really humorous. The Federalist is reporting President Joe Biden's son, Hunter, has landed a speaking gig at Tulane University where he will reportedly lecture to a class called Media Polarization and Public Policy Impacts on Fake News. (laughs) I'm not kidding. 
I mean, if you want to know how bad our university system is, state universities across this country, this is Exhibit A. Joe Biden is going to be paid to come and lecture university students at Tulane University on fake news. Although, you know, in a lot of ways, yeah, you're probably happy about it. A lot of ways, this does make sense. I mean, stop and think about it. Perhaps the biggest fake news story from this past election centered on Hunter Biden and the fact that the mainstream media and big tech refused to cover his story, his computer story, his uh, story of being on that uh, uh, gas company board and making millions of dollars and uh, the fact that his dad was involved in it. Very poor job. Yeah. but So, I mean, maybe it's appropriate he's going to lecture. I mean, will he use himself as an example of fake news? I'm sure he'll use himself as an example, and he'll try to peddle it as how he was the victim of right-wing conspiracies. No, we never heard that before. Uh, he is one of ten guests that will appear with other liberals from CNN uh, yeah, the only they, they actually have someone from Fox News too, by the way, Juan Williams. <laughs> Juan Williams, <coughs> yeah, excuse me. Juan Williams went on the other day and talked to uh, basically questioned, did any of the rioting occur last summer? Throughout the summer, we saw cities burn, and he questioned whether it actually happened. He's going to be one of the one of the panelists, along with Hunter Biden. Y- you can't make it up. The Hill is reporting U.S. embassies and consulates around the world have been authorized by the uh, Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, that they are authorized to display gay pride flags, the symbol of uh, the LGBT community, during Pride Month. Now, uh, stop and think about this. This was first reported, by the way, by the New York Times. The flags can be hung before May 17th, the International Day Against Homophobia and Transphobia. I didn't know there was such a day. I need to get my holiday calendar out and mark that down. Um, Secretary Blinken is committed to the rights and prosperity of our LGBTQ community, both our employees at state and around the world. Well, that's fine. They have the same rights that everybody else has. But do you, you put up a flag? First of all, you're putting up a gay, uh, a gay pride flag on the same flagpole with the flag of the United States of America. I think that's somewhat insulting to uh, the patriots to our country. But uh, here's my other question, too. What, are you going to do this for other causes? I mean, there's a Christian flag. What if an ambassador wanted to fly the Christian flag over the embassy they're working at uh, during the Christmas holidays? Are you going to permit that? You're not? Gee, what a shock that is. Um, again, you're, you're seeing firsthand how the progressives uh, continue to push their narrative, how they continue to use the false narrative of discrimination in order to uh, push their liberal agenda. Hey, listen, I uh, want to end on a high note, so uh, I'll just say this. Have a great weekend. It's going to be beautiful weather. Go to church on Sunday, and uh, we'll see you Monday at 5 o'clock. Bye-bye, everybody. All right, all right, all right.